Ira, then as he brings us your word, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to uh, be uh, better believers and better servants in you, Lord. Uh, forgive us for when we let you down and for when we sin, Lord. Um, be with us this week as we leave this place, um, and it's in uh, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner, for leading us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 is where we're going to start this morning, and we'll uh, get all the way through verse 17, Lord willing. Uh, for the first couple weeks that we've been in Corinthians, we've walked through the greeting with Paul. We've walked through the Thanksgiving, which has just been um, kind of ironic. Paul helped plant this church. Uh, we see that story in Acts. Uh, he loves this church. He's been with, uh, he stayed with them for about a year and a half after he planted them, discipled them, helped them raise up pastors, and then he left. And now he's getting these reports. He's hearing these letters. He's, he's learning that this church has not been healthy, not been doing well. That they have lots of issues and lots of struggles. And so it's interesting for us when we're reading the greeting and the thanksgiving, the first nine verses of this letter, that Paul seems to still genuinely love this church. Right? He calls them saints. He says they've been sanctified with the Lord. He's, he's grateful for the work that God is doing in them with God's grace. There's a lot for us to learn here. And so uh, we're going to dive in and see now as we get to kind of the first part of the meat of the letter. This is really what Paul is talking about for the rest of the letter. And everything else is going to kind of flesh it out. And it's this idea of unity and divisions within this local body of believers. And so let me just say, there are some divisions within our church uh, that are important and that we need to take a stand on. The gravy men's breakfast casserole is the best casserole, and it's borderline heresy to say anything else. So uh, from now on, there'll be church discipline if you say that the, the, I'm not saying the French toast casserole's bad, it's just not the gravy casserole. It's a men's breakfast, Linda. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a trivial, that's a joke we have. I, I absolutely love, I, I mean this, I told Dale this morning, that gravy casserole has changed my life. Like, that's what we eat Christmas morning now is the gravy men's breakfast casserole. Wade loves the cinnamon toast crunch casserole. Uh, and one day when he becomes an adult, he'll move away from the sugar and get into the gravy I'm outvoted on it, if it makes you feel better. There's more people that say they like the French toast one than the gravy one, so we have a lot of sanctifying work to do, and hopefully the Lord will grow us. That's a trivial division. It's something we can laugh at. It's something that we can have fun with. It's something that I can say with a microphone and know that Wade doesn't have a microphone and he can't rebuttal. I am loud enough to yell. There are other divisions that, that, that might be seeping into, not necessarily our church, but just in churches that Paul's going to talk about in Corinth. And so it's important when we talk about divisions and we talk about unity, what we're talking about is that we're not all identical and exactly the same. That's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is understanding what's the most important things that we do, that we believe, that who we are, and it's holding to those, and it's growing in those, and it's understanding that second and third tier issue things we may be different on, but we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can still love one another, and we can still do church together. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. We'll pray, and then we'll walk through this book by verse by verse like we always do. Now I urge you, 
brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is a rivalry among you. What am I saying is that what I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanias. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Help us to remember that that's what you've given us is today. That the past is the past. We can't change it. That the future is something that hasn't happened. We can't control it. What you've given us, Father, is today. Help us as we walk through this book of the Bible and specifically these passages that we understand what church unity is that we understand what rivalries, what divisions might be good for us, and God, which ones aren't. And give us a gospel clarity on these issues. Encourage our hearts where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to go back through verse 12. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, so that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is a rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Let's pause there. So Paul begins this letter, right? He's, he's given the greeting, he's done a thanksgiving, and now we get to kind of the meat, the heart of what the rest of this letter is going to be about until the very end when he does his kind of condolences. And so it may seem like an odd place for us to think Paul's going to start this letter with. right? He's been pretty kind, right? He, he lays down his authority, I'm an apostle at the very beginning. And then he says, now, brothers and sisters, when he's addressing this church. And so he has this idea of authority, but a loving authority that cares deeply for these people. And so it may seem odd for us that what Paul starts with is unity. But in reality, the underlying issue that First Baptist Church of Corinth is dealing with, that all of their other issues are stemming from, is this misunderstanding of what church unity is and what church unity is not. This is the reason churches die. This is the reason denominations die. This is the reason why churches fail to uphold their calling to hold the gospel up as a shining beacon, calling others who are lost and dying in the world to come to the true Christ who saves. It's disunity that causes all of these issues. So Paul has done a couple things, right? In the introduction, he tells them he's the Apostle Paul. He's not yelling at them, right? It's not in all caps, 
but he's also not just softly and tenderly not mentioning what they've been doing. He's real with them. He's giving them support in how they're supposed to run their local church. He's encouraging and he's supporting their leadership while understanding that there are issues and things that they've been doing wrong. And so he says, I urge you or, or I appeal, beseech, exhort you, to spending, depending on your translation. So, so this is a, a strong calling that Paul is talking about. He's not introducing the letter anymore. He's getting to what he's wanting to say to these people. This is Paul saying, listen to what I'm about to say. I urge you, hear me. And he says, brothers and sisters. The, 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 it's really just brothers is what Paul says. But the idea is it's not just the men in the church that Paul's talking to. He's talking to the whole church body. So if you have a more literal translation, it probably says brothers. If you have a more, um, like, less uh, literal translation, a more metaphorical, not, not metaphorical, a less literal translation, it probably says brothers and sisters. It's the same thing when we say mankind. We don't mean all men and none of the women. Right? Mankind, womankind. We mean just human beings. It's, it's just a thing of language. And so we're going to see that throughout this letter. What Paul is doing is giving an affectionate name for this church. He doesn't go, you sinners. He doesn't go, you people that I cannot stand anymore. He says, brothers, sisters. That the only way they're related is because they've both been adopted into the family of God. That they're both believers. That this is to a church, not to unbelievers. A church is what Paul's writing to. To Christians. The whole church is meant to hear this. And it's meant to address the issues that are come up. And so Paul says, I, I, I urge you, brothers, brother, I, I hear me, brothers, sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul laying his authority down again, but it's not really his authority. It's Paul saying, by God's authority, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Agree in what you say. Speak the same thing. Agree with one another in what you say. Be in agreement. Live in harmony with one another. That those are all different translations that are saying the same thing. Agree in what you say. That there be no divisions among y'all. It's a plural you. That y'all be united. That y'all be perfectly joined together. That y'all be made complete, perfectly united with the same understanding or mind and with the same conviction, judgment, thought, purpose. This is what Paul is saying. He's addressing the disunity that's been taking place in this churches. These churches become ununified for all sorts of different reasons. So it's important for us to carefully hear what Paul is saying. Because just because a church doesn't fight doesn't mean it's not unified or it's unified. And just because a church does argue doesn't mean that it's disunified. This is the main idea that Paul is fleshing out through the rest of the letter. So at this particular point... It's very easy to see the rivalry, the tension that's taking place within the church. So, again, unity is not thinking and feeling and acting and being the exact same as somebody else. That's not the call of the local church. Paul is talking about unity on issues of theology and unity on issues of doctrine. 
having the same understanding and the same conviction as your brothers and sisters in Christ that gather together with you. This isn't, hey, we all have to agree on what color the walls should be painted. This isn't, we should agree uh, on the amount that we give to whatever organization. This isn't, we should agree on what t-shirts we should order or what decorations we should use or the brand of toilet paper that the church buys or what coffee we brew. We can disagree on those things, and that's not a sign of us not being unified. What Paul is saying is being a biblical Christian is primarily being unified on theological and doctrinal things. That you should be growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and growing in your understanding of God. So Paul will get into in in a few verses what what happens. So let's let's continue on. He's telling the church, listen, Chloe's people, they tattletold. They showed up at Ephesus and... Chloe's people, Chloe's family told me about what's going on, that there's quarreling. Or maybe your translation says rivalry, contentiousness, fights. Like y'all are arguing. Can you imagine their faces when this was first being read? Right? You've got somebody sitting up at the church and they're reading Paul's letter and you know Paul. Everybody in the church knew Paul and Paul's like, hey, I know that some of y'all are fighting. Chloe told me about it. And then all of a sudden they go. I imagine... Some of the more bold people probably pointed at other people and was like, this is for you. Paul lays out the specific issue. They each had their favorite teacher. Some said, I belong to Paul. I bet you those people were happy when Paul wrote the letter and not Peter. Others said, I follow Apollos. Apollos is a guy who's mentioned several times in this letter, and we'll, we'll talk about him. He was a really good preacher. He could speak very, very well, but when he first got started, he had some issues doctrinally. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, two people who helped found this church in Corinth, and they teach him the ways of the Lord better, so he becomes a more doctrinally sound, a better preacher because of them. Others say, I belong to Cephas. Cephas is Peter's name, right? Peter is not Peter's real name, Cephas. Is. Jesus nicknamed Peter Peter because it means rock. And Peter was not a rock for most of his life. It's kind of Jesus' play on words with him. And so those people are like, well, Jesus left Peter, the leader of the apostles. We follow Peter. And then you have the super religious group that's like, we follow Jesus. And on the surface, this seems like the right answer. Christ is who we should follow. And there's a ton of debate by scholars on why exactly this is here and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And probably Paul was addressing the group that acted like they were more spiritual and better than everybody else. You follow Paul, cute. We follow Jesus. Get out of here with that Paul nonsense. This is the group that's like, what's your favorite book? And they go, the Bible. What's your favorite movie? The Bible. What's your favorite food? Lord's Supper. It's a group of people who use Jesus to make themselves feel superior to other people. That's not the real Jesus. The Bible says Jesus, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that means that his followers do the same. So Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Jesus are these four teachers, and there's been this rivalry, this, this arguments within this local church that is, is stewing because of these men. So we know Paul, we know Paul doesn't disagree with himself, right? Then we see Peter. In in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, Paul says this, talking about Peter and the other apostles. 
whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim to you as so you have believed. So, so it seems very odd that if Paul disagreed with what Peter is teaching, that he would have included Peter as someone who's doctrinally good at preaching. For Apollos, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 12, Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not willing and will come when he has an opportunity. Why would Paul urge Apollos to visit the Corinthians if he disagreed with what Paul was, Apollos was preaching and teaching? He wouldn't. So Paul doesn't have an issue with Apollos. And Paul certainly doesn't have an issue with Jesus. So what Paul is showing us and what, what he's teaching these people is all four of these men who were preachers, right, except Jesus, all the four followers that these people had elevated were teaching and preaching the right things. None of them are false teachers. None of them are leading them astray. This isn't an issue over the message that's being preached. It's an issue over the means in the medium that the message is being given. Some people like this guy's style better than that guy's style and vice versa. What we end up seeing within the, the Corinthians, and we can see it in ourselves too if we're not careful, is what happens with those kinds of arguments is pride begins to well up within our hearts. I like Paul. Well, I like Peter better. No, Apollos is better. No, Christ is better. Go, you like, get out of here. And this isn't the friendly, I enjoy this preacher or teacher. This ended up becoming a thing of, this is my way or the highway. You either follow Paul or you get out of this church. You either like Peter's style of teaching or you get out of this church. I find it funny as a pastor of a local church, that their local pastors aren't mentioned in this. How do you think they felt? Nobody likes me. You see what's happening? It's so easy to look at this and think this isn't the main issue that this church has. This church has a lot of issues and some very serious things that we would look at even now and go, if we saw a church doing that, we would be upset at them and call them out on it. This is the first thing Paul decides to address with this church because it's actually a very important thing that undermines the rest. The heart of much of their problem is they were undermining the pastors that they had. They pridefully looked down at other believers, brothers and sisters who were in the same church as them, who followed the same doctrines, the same theology, were orthodox, genuine, mature, Christian believers. They just had a different preference for how they liked the message of the gospel to be given. This isn't an issue of doctrine. This isn't an issue of theology. It's an issue of preference that has grown and has festered to the point that a church is suffering because so-and-so likes so-and-so while so-and-so likes somebody else, and now they can't sit in the same Sunday school class together. It's a good thing that in 2023 we've moved past those trivial arguments, isn't it? Now, social media has amplified this incredibly. False teachers are now supported as heroes of the faith. Solid Orthodox preachers are held like a like it's a battle. Like you're gonna, who's the best preacher? Well, I like this guy better. Well, I like this guy better, and that's all we really look at. 
Online services have created complacent and comfortable Christianity that involves no commitment, and it's simply sit and be entertained, but make sure you like, subscribe, and share before you leave. It's less about building a church and being unified and more about a pastor getting a platform so that he can feel powerful about himself. And so then in the local church, it creeps in like, well, why can't you be like so-and-so? Well, I don't like what you said, and this pastor over here says it the way I like it, so I'm going to go follow this pastor. And can you see how an actual local church cannot sustain unity if that's your goal? Online preachers can be great, but I promise you they will not show up at your funeral. They won't visit you in the hospital. They're not going to take care of your family when you're struggling. They won't say hi to you at the store. They're not going to build a relationship with you. They won't challenge you to grow in your faith. They won't truly love you because they don't truly know who you are. And the reciprocal is true as well. You won't pray for them. If you know that they're having a difficult funeral and there's a hard tragedy they're, try they're trying to minister to. You don't encourage them by hugging their family and, and asking how they're doing and praying for their wife and kids. You don't know them. You won't see them at the store, and even if you do, they won't recognize you. You certainly won't have a relationship with them beyond like you're just some fictional like that happens on social media. And you might be challenged to grow in your faith by their message, but they won't be encouraged by seeing you grow in your faith. You love what they give you, but you can't really love them because you're not known by them. And the reality is, little churches like ours will be the first to die if we do not decide that this isn't how unity takes place. And what will end up happening is we'll lock the doors and there will be social media posts. What a shame. That's where my grandpa and my grandma went. They used to take me there when I was growing up. I wish we could go back and do something. Why can't we keep the church doors open? There is a way. And it's to be a unified member of a local church. To know them and to be known by them. And in this we emulate the gospel. We are known by God, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the things that nobody else knows about us, the deepest and darkest thoughts that we have, the worst sins that we've ever done. We are fully and completely known by God. And we are still loved, redeemed, rescued, saved, and sanctified of the believers in Jesus. And the only reason we know God is because God has revealed himself to us in the word, the Bible, in Christ himself. And so what we see Paul saying subtly here is the local church is God's plan for the world, but the local church must be unified on the right things. Let's look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanias. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. So now Paul kind of peels back the layers of this disunity that's taking place, and he does so in a very Pauline way. He asks rhetorical questions. 
If you ever read any of Paul's letters or Paul's books, especially Romans, he'll ask a question. Sometimes he'll answer it, but a lot of times it's just very clear what the answer is. Is Christ divided? No. So then neither should his bride. There is no disunity in Christ. He is God himself. There is no division. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Right, and Paul does a smart thing here. He doesn't say, was Peter crucified for you? Because if Paul said, is Peter crucified for you? Then it might be interpreted as a subtle way of digging at Peter and saying the Peter group is wrong. What Paul does is he uses himself as an example. But you could do with any other, right? Was Apollos crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Was Christ crucified for you? Yeah, Christ was. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Great Commission talks about baptism, and it talks about how we baptize each other. So I want to read this. This is Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What you don't see there is baptize them in the name of Paul. It's a rhetorical question. No, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. If you were baptized in the name of Paul, it was not a Christian baptism. It doesn't count. You got wet. Congrats. This is why when you're baptized, the preacher or whoever it is that baptizes you has very little importance to play. Right Outside of pull you up out of the water if you can't swim, that's about the most valuable thing. The reason why is because baptism is the front door to the local church. It's how you enter the family. So when here, when we baptize here, we ask the candidates a bunch of questions. I talked to them beforehand, but then when we're in the water, there's questions. The trick is the answer is always yes. We affirm, have them affirm their faith. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? That's the way, yeah, I believe that. We have them affirm that you're going to join the church and you're going to be discipled by the church and help disciple others in the church. They affirm that. And then here we do a unique thing where we have each person who's a member in the congregation. We say, are you going to affirm this person? That you're going to help disciple this person and be discipled by this person. And the church says, Amen. Because in reality, the person that's doing the baptism is representing the body of Christ, the church. So I stand in the baptistry not as somebody special. Not that I offer any kind of ritual. Like there's no secret glitter that I'm sprinkling in the water that's going to make you more holy. I represent our church. And I baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune God, as a, as a representative of our church. Who baptizes you has very little importance. It really adds nothing to your faith. Who disciples you matters. Who points you to Jesus matters. That seems to be an issue that the Corinthians are having. And so Paul delves deeper into this idea. How many pastors do you know who have ever given thanks that they didn't baptize a bunch of people? Paul. He goes, I thank the Lord that I didn't baptize many of you. That doesn't happen now. Now it's a social media post because we're padding stats. We've baptized this person four times. That counts as four baptisms. It's a badge of honor to wear. Look how many people we baptized. Look how many weeks in a row we've baptized becomes a pride thing, the very thing that Paul is warning against. 
I think it's so funny that Paul goes, I am glad I didn't baptize a bunch of you. And, and there's an interesting thing that happens in this letter, and it helps us understand how the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author of Scripture. Paul is the human author. The Holy Spirit is the real author, God. But God uses Paul. God uses the authors of Scripture without removing their personalities, without removing their experiences, and etc. He didn't make Paul a robot or a puppet. So like Paul, just his hand starts wiggling around and he starts writing. That's not how Paul penned this letter. And we see that here. Because Paul has a senior moment. He starts listing all these people. I baptized this person. I baptized this person. He goes, I'm grateful I didn't baptize many of you. Oh, yeah, and I forgot I baptized this family also, and I can't remember if I've baptized anybody else in the church. It's Paul being used by God without having his experiences, his emotions, his feelings, his thoughts being taken away. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, that this word is inerrant, that it's infallible, that it's the word of God, and that God used human authors to make it. And so we see some people, Crispus Gaius, probably leaders in the church. And then we see this odd phrase, Stephanias and his whole household. It's an interesting point that needs to be made because it's passages like this where, where there are people who are baptized and their household, and then a few other passages where people who do infant baptism will use these as justification. It wasn't just Stephanias, it was Stephanias and his household. And so the assumption is, Everybody in the household just got dunked underwater or were baptized there, and that's the justification for infant baptism. That's not what I believe. That's not what I believe the Scripture teaches. That's not historically what Baptists have believed. We're called Baptists because we immerse. What we see here and what's important to look at is it's not stated that they were unbelievers in Stephanias' household who were baptized. The assumption is Stephanias was saved and he shared the gospel with his family and his family was saved and that's why they were baptized. It was believers who were baptized, not unbelievers. And so what Paul shows here is, yes, there's disunity. People like different pastors. There's this issue that's struggling and being brought up within the church. But the solution to this disunity is not, okay, let's all compromise and meet in the middle. That's typically not a good solution for true biblical unity. Because then what you do is you just push further on this side so that the middle is actually where you want it to be. We don't see that in politics, do we? Now the solution is to get back to what is first and foremost the fundamentals of the faith. What matters most? Paul is reminding the people Paul wasn't baptized for you. Paul wasn't crucified for you. And Christ isn't divided. That Christ has sent pastors and deacons to churches to lead them. But at the end of the day, pastors are shepherds, but they're really under shepherds. And deacons are important, but they're really servants. That Christ is the true shepherd. That Christ is the head of the church. And your pastors, your deacons, your committees, everything that functions in the church is accountable to Christ first and foremost. That the whole church is really about Jesus. And that the gospel is central to the church. It's the driving force for all that we do. Unity should be built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We walk in the gospel. We love in the gospel. And we are a people of the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. So what is the gospel? Verse 17. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Can you imagine? It's such an interesting thing. Paul is saying, I'm not sent to baptize you. Paul has a special calling as an apostle where he goes, he plants these churches, he builds them up, he raises up pastors, he raises up church leadership, and then he moves on to the next church. That's why he has all of these letters. We have three missionary journeys of Paul written in the book of Acts. But Paul is saying his calling is not to stay and baptize. Do you know how many people Jesus Christ baptized? Zero. Can you imagine the temptation that if you were baptized by Jesus Christ, the temptation to pride that could well up within us? You were baptized by Paul? Cute. I was baptized by Jesus. Have you ever heard of him? Paul's laying out the main point for this unity. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus in my place. That's what we put on our baptism shirts when somebody gets baptized. Jesus in my place. It's us recognizing that we are sinners who cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot be good enough. We are not smart enough. We're not talented enough. They're not enough in and of ourselves. That's not what the world tells us. The world says you are enough, but the gospel screams, no, you're not. You're not enough in and of yourself. You need a savior. You need someone outside of you to come and to save you. Your sin is too great for you to atone for. My sin is too great for me to atone for. But Jesus is greater than all of my sin. He is God in the flesh who lived the perfect life, the life that we were supposed to live, who we were supposed to be, what we were supposed to do. When we sinned, we ruined it. And he dies the death that you and I deserve. The wages of sin is death is what Romans tells us. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Our cost for sin is death and Christ comes and dies so that you and I might live that's the gospel and on the cross Jesus bears the wrath of God for our sin it's not his rebellion that he's paying for it's not his sin there is no sin in Christ it's ours and it's a debt that you and I could never pay we could save up our money for an eternity and not put a drop in enough to cover all of our sin It's about Jesus. The gospel's about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. It's not about me and it's not about you. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as Scripture alone tells us. We're not saved by grace alone, plus just a little bit of my own works. We're not saved by faith alone, plus some of my own goodness. We're not saved in Christ alone, but just a little bit of my own good standing. We're not saved for the glory of God alone, mostly, but I would like a little bit of the credit too. We're not saved because the scripture alone and also tradition and experience and feelings tell us that this is what we need to do to be good. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. As scripture alone proclaims. Proclaiming that message is what Paul said he's called to do. Paul is unique that God called him to plant these churches, to raise up these pastors, and then to move on and care from afar. 
It's those local pastors in those churches that baptize, not because they're better than Paul and they're great, but it's because they represent the body of believers that are there. And I love that Paul says, I preach the gospel not with eloquent wisdom or eloquent words or clever speech, whatever your translation is saying. Paul is making clear that the main point, this is the main point of the next section of Scripture, but it's the gospel that saves, that it's God that saves. Paul isn't a salesman trying to get you to buy into a used Savior half off. He isn't an entertainer trying to keep your attention so that he can get to the altar call at the end of the message. He's an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ, and the message he is preaching makes absolutely no sense to a lost and dying world. The world says you're enough. The world says if you have problems, look inside of you and be true to who you really are on the inside of your heart, and that's how you'll be happy. The world says that all of your problems exist outside of you. Your problem is toxic people. Your problem is others. But the gospel says the world is lying to you. That you are not enough and that your problem isn't outside of you. Your problem is the deep-seated sin that takes place in your heart. That's foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of the gospel. It is the effect of the cross. I say this, I feel like I say this a lot, but there's a subtle dangerous movement in Christianity and it's a slow shift away from the cross of Christ I was talking to a pastor friend a a few weeks ago maybe months ago now and he had another pastor tell him the cross doesn't matter it's the resurrection that matters Paul doesn't seem to think that way And, and he spends the whole like last few chapters of this book in Corinthians talking about the resurrection. What the resurrection does is it proves that what Christ did on the cross worked. So we preach Christ crucified. And we look to the power of the the, the cross. See this shift in our uh, Christian music that we'll listen to on the radio. Do it this week. Listen to how many Christian songs do not talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. They'll talk about love. They'll talk about forgiveness. They'll talk about grace. They'll talk about mercy. They'll talk about compassion. They'll talk about kindness. And every now and then you'll get one that'll talk about the cross. Because it's foolishness to the world. See, what we see in this last verse that Paul gives us is is the importance of a proclamation It's the importance of preaching and proclaiming the Bible in the local church. There are churches that move away from preaching because statistics tell us that our attention spans are only as long as the latest social media. And I can't preach a sermon in the amount of time a TikTok takes. That our attention spans are getting less and less. That people don't want that anymore. What they want are videos or they want uplifting and positive messages. They want to be entertained or they want whatever it is that they want. I don't want sermons to be mindlessly boring for you. But I also don't want to tickle your ears. So we preach the gospel here. We are gospel-centered. In Sunday school, we will teach the gospel through books of the Bible. When we sing songs, we sing songs that are gospel-centered. I don't know if you know this or not, but that means there are certain songs we will not sing, and there are certain bands that we will not sing. 
We don't exclusively sing hymns. We don't exclusively sing praise songs. We sing theologically rich songs that match the main point of the text of Scripture that's being preached. On Wednesday nights, we'll teach the gospel through the Bible. On Sunday mornings, I preach the gospel through the Bible, week in and week out, over and over and over again. Because I believe at some point we have to stop asking what it is that we want, and instead we need to ask what it is that we need. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The goal is not to be entertained. The goal is not really to have fun. The goal is not to grow a crowd. The goal is not to the goal is not to run you off either. The goal for me for these gatherings is to make them worth coming to. So that if you miss them, it should make you sad and longing for being back with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because it's what you want, but because it's what you need. So for believers, if we look at what Paul is talking about here, disunity is always an issue and striving for unity is the goal. We're doing a, a study with the deacons, some deacon training, and one of the things that the book that the deacons and I are reading through is this idea that deacons are supposed to be unifiers in the church. That's one of the main things that they do. That's one of the main jobs a church member has is to unify, to be one body. It's not a bad thing to listen to other preachers. It's not a bad thing to follow other churches. It's not a bad thing to do those things. But if you love a person more than you love the Lord, you need to check your heart and you need to check their message. My goal with sermons is I want to preach the gospel in the text clearly. And my hope is that you leave going, what a great God we have, not how great of a preacher Ben is. So for believers, what is it that you can do to help unify the church? Is there divisions that you see? Are there things in your heart that are welling up with divisions that need to be taken care of? Repent, pray, apologize, and grow in the Lord. Unbelievers, if you're here, one of the greatest complaints, if you talk to somebody who's not in the... And listen, if you're an unbeliever, you are welcome here too, and you can join our posse of hypocrites. We're not perfect. He comes back when we die, and he takes us into glory. But until then, we're just a group of believers who are trusting in the Lord to grow us slowly over the course of time as we continue to delve into the gospel more and more as the word of God proclaims to us more and more. So what is keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ? People will fail you, but the Lord will not. What is keeping you from repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus Christ this morning? There is no true salvation in any other name but in Christ alone. And lastly, before we pray and, and, and transition over, We've talked about baptism a lot in this passage because Paul brings it up and we'll talk about it more. 
let me encourage you to reflect on your baptism if you've been baptized. It should be a time for you to look back and to enjoy what the Lord has done and to rejoice that God saved you and that you were baptized into a body of believers. But here's what baptism isn't. It doesn't actually save you. It's a symbol. It reminds you of what Christ has already done. He's washed you clean, that you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were raised to walk in the newness of life. So for some of you, maybe you were baptized, but you were not a believer when you were baptized. You need baptism, not rebaptism. Maybe for some of you, you've never been baptized, and you've just kind of been waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting for the right time or the right moment to do so. There's a pastor who says baptism is the first and the easiest commandment for a believer. All of the other commandments that come after that are substantially harder. And if that's you, come talk to me. I don't typically stand up front. You're welcome to come up front and talk to me if you want to, but more likely if you'll catch me in the back, we can have a good conversation. Or I live in Ira. We're here for Ira. You can holler at me, and I'll gladly talk to you at any point. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. God, we thank you that whatever divisions come up within our church, whatever things that cause rivalries or disunity or, or whatever it is that comes up, God, the solution is to always go back to the gospel. To remember what's most important to hold true to the doctrines that, that matter for Christianity and the secondary and the third uh, tier things to kind of let them slip away. To love one another. Not to exactly look like one another, but to love one another for who we are and to help one another grow in Jesus Christ. God, I'm grateful that the gospel is the solution to that problem and to all of our problems that life is tricky and that things are hard and that there's all sorts of things being thrown at us from all different directions and it can feel chaotic and it can feel confusing. But what we know for truth, what we stand on in the midst of the chaos is the good news of you, Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens, you hold us and never let us go. Help us to glorify you. Help us to love you. Help us to cherish you. Help us to share you. Unify us in you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.